0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, April 7th, 2020. From Slate It's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump was asked today about a memo that his trade advisor Peter Navarro put together warning of the dangers of the coronavirus. Wouldn't have changed his mind, Trump stated confidently teasing out his thought process for the Assembled Press Corps. The memo was, you know, the memo was pretty good memo from the standpoint that uh, he took, I guess. I didn't see it yet. Okay, I'm satisfied. Good memo from the standpoint of, I guess, I haven't read it yet. I have watched, I would say, 30 governors' press conferences. Some haven't been great. But even the ones who I've criticized have been more or less... Coherent. Ron DeSantis made bad choices in Florida, but he explained those choices coherently. I disagree with his thinking, but I can follow it. Kay Ivy of Alabama would be, to the ears of an Alabaman, I think uplifting to some degree. Donald Trump is the worst communicator in America on this issue. I mean, like I say, I haven't seen every governor, but I have seen most of them. And I have seen dozens of mayors talk to a few, seen local officials. Literally, no one is worse than Trump at putting words and thoughts and reasons together. And I don't mean words and thoughts and reasons where I say, oh, that convinced me, that won me over, or even that was a thought-provoking argument. That's not my standard. I mean, he is the worst at putting words and thoughts and reasons together that are recognizable as words and thoughts and reasons. Now, Jim Justice of West Virginia I'm going to say he's the second worst. Here he was today talking about a former politician in the state, Jeff Kessler.
1: Jeff called me on the phone. I think it was uh, it was it was maybe Friday or Saturday. I can't recall. I think Saturday, and he called me to tell me that he knew of a person that could help us with some additional supplies. Now you get a lot of calls, and some of them you run to the ground, run to ground, and they come up with who knows what.
0: Long story short. Jeff helped West Virginia procure a million items of PPE.
1: Jeff, we really appreciate the call. And uh, Jeff asked me, he said, well, who's going to get to these people and everything? I said, I am. And so... I called the front front, front, first line, and then they gave me to another, and I called him and everything, and off we ran. We got with our people, the guard and everybody, and they did great work and everything.
0: Okay, so not every executive address will be, we shall fight them on the beaches, we shall fight them in the hills, but the reason... I put Jim Justice above Trump, is that Jim Justice can at least give some other people credit sometimes. And Jim Justice doesn't seem like he loves a fight, like he's spoiling for a fight, like he draws energy from a fight with the press corps. And he doesn't run away from responsibility. When I say that Donald Trump is the worst public official on the issue, I don't mean that as hyperbole. I don't mean that as a strategic insult to draw maximum damage because you're an anti-Trump audience and I give you the anti-Trump red meat. I say that having watched dozens and dozens of officials of all stripe, and in some cases, some who have worst policies. I think the governor of Mississippi has worse policies. I think Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas actually has worse policies than Trump does on the national level as regards the pandemic but I judge them all to be superior to Trump in terms of communicating his ideas with the public or her ideas, telling them, telling us really what we need to hear. Yesterday, Trump came out against the idea of voting by mail. So today there are horrible lines in Wisconsin and Trump, the democratically elected president of a country dealing with a pandemic, was asked about carrying out the basic fundamentals of democracy during a pandemic.
1: Look, all I did was endorse a candidate. I don't know anything about their lines. I don't know anything about their voting. I love the state.
0: I won won the state, which is
1: rare for a Republican to do, but I won the state of Wisconsin. I'm going to win it again. That was his answer.
0: He doesn't know about that. Why are you asking him? Literally the worst communicator in the time of pandemic out of every governor and every mayor who I've seen. When asked... To communicate to a constituency and deliver them information that they could use, either psychically or practically, Trump is in last place. And unfortunately, he is asked to communicate with the largest constituency of all. And he doesn't know anything about it. On the show today, the virus, what's its motive? Does it discriminate? I don't want to step on the answer, but it's pretty interesting. It's one you and your family will want to hear. Because a virus is bad, but a discriminatory virus, that's just not right. But first, with Joe Biden as the presumptive Democratic nominee, I love that, the so passive voice. I will say it. I presume Joe Biden will be the nominee. But a lot of people did not presume that. Among them, most African-American pundits, let's just say most pundits, but African-American pundits were in that group. And when you look at how popular he is with African-American voters, you might ask why. Why were those tasked with analyzing and explaining the African-American electorate to the broader public wrong? so often wrong. It is not a question of who correctly got the Biden nomination, presumably, so it is. It's not a question of who got it right, but it's a question of who accurately assessed and explained Biden's appeal. Clarence Page was such a person, the longtime columnist for the Chicago Tribune. And by the way, that comes into play that he's a longtime columnist. He got it mostly right. So Clarence comes on and we discuss Biden, the electorate and the generational shift among voters and pundits. That's up next. So on this week, when we just speak to smart people about things that we need to know from them, I have invited on Clarence Page, the great columnist for the Chicago Tribune, one of the original and just the most soulful and temperate member of the McLaughlin group. I guess it's not saying much, but he was my favorite. And we're going to talk about Joe Biden and the black community and Bernie Sanders and Democrats. Hello, Clarence. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me on again.
0: Absolutely. So as I look at the black vote, as we all look at the black vote, overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. And yet, as I remember the conversations I had on this show on air, just read about, it does seem to me that most of the black intelligentsia was very suspicious of Joe Biden. Do you agree with this assessment? Do you have an explanation as to why?
1: Yeah. And the, the, the black smart people, too. I want to point that out. Uh, <laughs> the the that's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that with a great deal of experience. having not been black all my life. I first got interested in politics as a kid, just hearing my dad and uncle talk about it. I tell you, I've had colleagues say that black folks are the most Politically pragmatic and uh, Machiavellian and sensible, forward thinking of any particular voting block—that's a
0: compliment, a pejorative, and a compliment. Well, yeah,
1: you yeah, you know, uh, right. uh, certainly strategic thinking has always been very important for African Americans. When you have a history like ours in this country, you become very aware of who has the power and what games are being played. I'm old enough to remember back when being a black Republican was not an oddity uh, and quite the opposite. People get people like, like Ed Brooks, for example, the first black senator from Massachusetts was a Republican and, right. and from Massachusetts. Uh, okay. So it's like uh, that was not extraordinary. These days, certainly, there is a, a sense among black folks that, as one of my friends says, uh, my white man's better than your white man. Uh, it's that kind of a contest sometimes because even if you don't have power in the particular election, uh, you look and see which side are you on or, or more important. Who's on your side? In fact, that was something a Congressman Jim Clyburn uh, in South Carolina said when he endorsed Biden in that primary, which was uh, such an important endorsement.
0: Right, which to me echoed FDR. Did you know him? As they said to the guy who was watching the funeral, no, but he knew us. I exactly. think that that was supposed to be an exact representation. Of course, that's right. FDR before him, the black vote always went to the Republican. He was the first Democrat to win the black vote, and Democrats have never lost it. But if we were to explain why this shift, the people. people. People who are talking and saying where the black vote should go or would go and all the fault they found with Biden. If I had an explanation for it. I think it's age. I think it's a generational thing. But I think that there are several aspects to that that I know you've been thinking about because you wrote that column to your son.
1: Yeah, he too has a strong political sense. And uh, we're calling our podcast Generation Fringe because it's, as I call it, the baby boomer versus the millennial. And we are classic voting father and son These days uh, for African-American fathers and sons, I'm the Biden supporter and he is the Bernie bro, although Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to say Bernie bro at home. (laughs) <laughs> if, you, if you know about all of the negative connotations that go with that label, but no wants uh, to be called a bro yeah but but you know I'm old enough to remember George McGovern 72 <laughs> election uh, in which uh, there was a real divide in the Democratic Party between generations there again. I would never forget how the Jesse Jackson delegation or sub-delegation led the Illinois delegation into a protest that led to Mayor Richard J. Daly. The boss, his delegation being unseated, and Jackson's delegation being seated, and that was a big victory for those who remember four years earlier the Chicago '68 convention, where the younger generation uh, was uh, uh, well, there was a, a real clash there, mainly over the Vietnam War. That year, uh, you saw the, uh, the baby boomers starting to get real political power and, of course, partly as a result of that, George McGovern lost 49 states. Because it's very hard to go into an election with the party divided. The party was deeply divided at that time. And I remind my son of this as the Democrats argue over, what do we do if Bernie gets nominated? Uh, And and my son says, well, you ought to support him. (laughs) I said, well, will the Bernie people support Biden if he gets the Mm -hmm. nomination? And he says he's not so sure about that. Uh, Certainly, Biden is viewed as part of the old corrupt establishment. Uh, Uh, Mm -hmm. which amuses me because that's what we used to say about Mayor Daley. uh, But, you know, my son doesn't remember all the times that Joe Biden was on our side as African-Americans. He he, he remembers, though, talk of the Anita Hill uh, hearings, the uh, crime bill of 1994, which um, led to more mass incarceration of African-Americans. Also, uh, his working with uh, Strom Thurmond on the Judiciary Committee. And I told my son, you know, you didn't get anything done in those days on Judiciary or any other committee if you weren't cozy with the Southern political establishment.
0: But let's talk, talk about the crime bill because yeah. I'm where you are. I read your column on it, which is maybe it's not politically the right move or the woke move, but he should, Biden should say, I'm proud of what we did in the crime bill. That's right. He should say, we brought crime down. And he should also say, and all the studies show that incarceration, while a bad problem, had crested, and maybe the crime bill added a little to it, but there are so many other opportunities afterwards to have undone that. You can't blame it all on the 94 crime bill, which was, by the way, a uh, federal bill, and so wouldn't have affected, really affected state incarceration rates unless you look at Uh, Some some initiatives in terms of mandatory minimums. But my point is, it seems to me that some of these are differences of opinions based on tactics or the ideal world. But on the crime bill, it does seem to me that there is a little bit of misinformation among all the people uh, who are your son's age or cohort or the people who are Bernie backers who just see that as purely a negative. I don't know. I mean, I hate to seem patronizing and saying, oh, you don't know the facts, but (laughs) it does seem to be the case.
1: Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, too, right? If uh, Joe Biden, I'm sure, and a lot of other Democrats who backed the bill back then had known the consequences that would come because of, of excesses. And of course, the same arguments made about stop and frisk now. You know, this is very similar with the, crime bill. It was passed with the support, not just of Joe Biden, but most of the Black Caucus back then. Now, a number of Black Caucus members wanted some other reforms that were not included because of opposition from conservative Republicans. But they did get a deal because black Americans were, especially black urban Americans in the North especially, were so fed up with the surge in violent crime that they wanted uh, some strong measures as well. And so the atmosphere at that time was very much in favor of it. But I think what really has made the difference for Biden is simply that he was there for us, if you will. That's the, the sort of thing you'll hear from older black folks. And I think a lot of younger ones, too.
0: But let me ask you this, because to this moment, Bernie's backers are still making the case that we can't nominate Biden. He is unexciting in the same way that Hillary was unexciting. And this will affect turnout. And they seem to be ignoring that that theory has not worked at all for Bernie in the primary. I guess you can assert Bernie will be the more exciting one. You don't have to back it up, but there seems to be no evidence to back it up. And the lesson of 16 might be that Hillary was unexciting, but how does that really map on to 2020?
1: Interesting question, because I think that the excitement level that Bernie had in 2016 was quite profound. But as I mentioned, he was not accustomed to bringing out the black turnout, Hispanic turnout, and a number of other voting groups. And when you consider All of that, the man from Vermont did darn well nationwide in in getting uh, a movement going. Now, folks say, well, he hasn't turned out as many as he did before. Yeah, but look at what he's done as far as Democratic thinking. And I say Democratic with an uppercase D. All the candidates, all the major candidates favored Medicare for all or something like it. Medicare for all is an important issue. That's just how much the party has changed, partly from pressure from the voters. And this has benefited Bernie. But at the same time, there's closer scrutiny now of, well, he may get the nomination. Will people turn out for a Democrat who is a known socialist, who doesn't run away from that label? And that became the big issue. And Frankly, if there is any big issue with Democrats this year, it is beating Donald Trump. Everything else, health care and everything else is secondary because there's this new pragmatism now. Uh, Very much like back when uh, McGovern lost and Nixon won, uh, there's new pragmatism that says, look, you can have the most wonderful social service program you want. If you don't get elected, nothing's going to happen with it. That's the kind of um, pragmatism that has helped Joe Biden, actually, because folks— Uh, now have that hard choice to make about who can most effectively get elected so that some kind of reform can happen on health care and other similar issues.
0: I do want to go back to this question, this intriguing question to me of the, and I haven't quantified it, but it certainly seems true that before the voting happened, the message that we got from most pundits who claim to speak about or knowledgeably, if not for the African-American community, was that Joe Biden was going to have a big problem with the African-American community, mainly because of things like the crime bill, and they even went back to 1972 and busing and so forth. And that turned out not to pass. Now, we've analyzed what drove most black voters, which is that they never said that they weren't voting for Biden. They always told pollsters they favored Biden. It's just the smart people who were said to analyze this. And I have a few explanations, but Mm -hmm. one seems to be that those people are pulled from the more progressive side of the Democratic Party than and most black voters are. So that's one phenomenon, that black public intellectuals are perhaps more progressive than black voters. Right. But another one is age. And I do wonder how to analyze this. I have a, a couple of other theories, but maybe there was a time when there were just so few black pundits in the media, right? You and maybe William Raspberry.
1: Carl Rowan. We were it for a while there. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. We weren't getting a big sampling of African-American thought. So that's been corrected. But maybe the kind of sampling that we've got and the kind of people who are booked on television shows and so forth are just much more progressive than the average black person. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it does add up to giving a misimpression. This is how Mm -hmm. I experience: a misimpression of Bernie's chances with actual black voters.
1: I think you're onto something, Mike. I have learned the hard way not to think that everybody who votes is as passionate about the issues as me and my son. You know, uh, Most folks uh, have other things to do in their lives besides politics. I have no idea what those <laughs> things might be. But in the black community in general, the past associations mean a lot, just like any other human relations. If you known somebody for a long time? or it was it, Molly Ivins used to say, dance with the one that brung you? Uh, Mm -hmm. Remember the folks who helped you in the past and you help them out now. That's uh, such a fundamental part of politics or the story every politician tells about their neighbor that they'd known all their lives who didn't vote for them. And they say, say, what happened? They say, well, you didn't ask me. (laughs) I've known you all my life. I said, yeah, but you didn't come by and ask me for my vote. That is really – there's a real – very important, real politic to that story. Nowadays, uh, what's happened to the bushes? now. They're out in the wilderness. The folks who, who have moderate views in the party uh, have been elbowed aside by the uh, new Trump era. And here again, Joe Biden is the kind of guy who can reach those what Republicans out in the wilderness, those moderately disposed folks who may have voted Republican for the last 20, 30 years, whatever, but they don't like a lot of things about Donald Trump. If you give them a, a more attractive alternative, uh, they'll be willing to come halfway for you. That's another thing us older folks <laughs> appreciate about Biden.
0: So, in your conversations with your woke son, as per the title of that column, and your current or ongoing or planned podcast with him, have either of you changed each other's minds about anything?
1: What's important here is that uh, whether or not we've changed each other's minds, that we understand more where each of us is coming from, and yeah, that makes a difference. Yeah. We don't we don't yell at each other as loudly now. <laughs> Clarence Page
0: is a Pulitzer-winning columnist, primarily with the Chicago Tribune. His uh, most recent book of columns is called Culture Warrior, where he was on the show talking about that. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Clarence. Take care.
1: You too. Thank you.
0: And now, the spiel. Hi, it's me, Mike Pesca, And I'm here with an important public health reminder. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the coronavirus, a lot of loose talk, misinformation. I'm here to clear some of it up. You know, over the last week, we've come to learn a lot about the coronavirus, how it is acquired, how it is transmitted, how long it lasts, what's the R-naught number, how viral load affects symptoms. And our knowledge in all these areas is growing. But there is one aspect of the virus that, surprisingly to me at least, has been the course of a lot of speculation. It's not what's the virus's origin, bats, or... How easily is the virus transmitted, or not between two and three? Or what's the virus's incubation period, mean of 5.2 days? No, the speculation has been, what's the virus's motivation? Namely, is this a discriminatory virus? Well, a panel of experts agree.
1: The coronavirus does not have a political affiliation and will not discriminate based on...
0: The virus does not discriminate. This virus does not discriminate. This virus doesn't discriminate. The coronavirus does not discriminate. I've said over and over again, the virus doesn't discriminate. There you see, the virus doesn't discriminate. This is indeed a job for the CDC, not the EEOC, thank goodness. Now, if you're wondering, okay, but just how ecumenical is this virus really? Well, different experts have been studying this, and they're here to offer their findings. To start us off, here is Ashish Jha the director of the Global Health Institute at Harvard University. The virus doesn't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. The virus is gonna run rampant. Okay, that's understandable, but he did leave out independence, and I was wondering about independence. Can anyone address the very live issue? Is the virus attacking maybe those who are conservative on fiscal matters, but liberal on social issues? What say you, Joe Biden? Let me be crystal clear.
1: The coronavirus does not have a political affiliation. It will infect Republicans, independents and Democrats alike and will not discriminate based on national origin, race, gender or zip code.
0: It's true. Contrary to some early reports you may have read out of a small sample size in France, the best science indicates that the coronavirus is not a Democrat, not a Republican and not even an Independent. Also, the virus will attack yellow dog Democrats, will target log cabin Republicans, will go after a mugwump, a dough face, or a free soiler, all in good stead. Will being hashtag resistance offer hashtag resistance from the virus? It hashtag will not. So the virus doesn't care about ideology. And according to former representative Trey Gowdy,
1: this virus
0: does not care what your political ideation is. This virus doesn't care what your nationality is. Yep, it also doesn't care about political ideation. So lose synonyms for political ideology. The virus does have a thesaurus, doesn't care about dictionaries, but whatever synonym you could find for what the virus doesn't care about, realize this, it doesn't care about the synonym for that either. What I'm saying is this really does not seem to be some kind of linguistic ploy. The virus really and truly seems not to have hate in its heart or possibly, looked at another way, has only hate in its heart, but an equal hate for everyone. Kind of refreshing. It's a very, very important way to look at the virus. We must regard the virus in this manner. Other politicians like Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer take this analysis a step further. It doesn't discriminate based on city line, state line, party line. It doesn't care about fishing lines or pickup lines. It doesn't discriminate among any of the original cast members of whose line is it anyway. Another elected official, Colorado Representative Joe Neguse, added a wrinkle. This virus does not discriminate. It does not matter uh, what state you live in, uh, what you look like. Doesn't matter what you look like. Virus, not lookist. That must be what's behind so many people I used to think of as well-groomed showing up in Zoom chats looking like hell. But apparently I'm wrong. The virus does not discriminate on looks. Unlike the infamous BDI infestation of ot 5 and that weak chin parasite that just tore through the royal families of Europe. It doesn't discriminate. It's not all about looks. That's right. Getting the correct Instagram filter, not a vaccine. And neither is a really cute outfit. The virus does not discriminate um, against us because
1: of our our skin tone, because of our political beliefs or what brands of clothes that we wear. Um,
0: That was Lily Yang. She's a fashion designer, I found out. So if anything, regard what she said as a statement against self-interest. You can believe her. So we have leaders from the world of science, politics and dressmaking all in agreement. The virus doesn't care. The virus has pretty much embodied the ideal of non-discrimination, while at the same time getting no credit for its open-heartedness. But the best analysis of the virus exhibiting honey badger levels of not caring is brought to us by, as is often the case, Madonna in a bathtub. That's the thing about COVID-19. It doesn't care about how rich you are. How famous you are, how funny you are, how smart you are, where you live, how old you are, what amazing stories you can tell. It's the great equalizer, and what's terrible about it is what's great about it. What's terrible about it is it's made us all equal in many ways. Now, let's just step back from the tone I had been taking and uh, say this about what Madonna just told us and about many of the statements you've heard. The virus not discriminating is an uninteresting point because it is so obvious. It is so cliched as to not bear mentioning but there is an exception, occasionally an exception to the cliche. And that is when the statement isn't cliched, but actually wholly inaccurate. because the virus may not care about its effects. It doesn't have cognition, I think you knew that, but it certainly seems to have been affecting certain populations much worse than others. So it doesn't care if you're black and white? I don't know, it's killing more black people at disproportionate rates at least. It doesn't care if you're rich or poor, except the rich can distance and don't rely on mass transit as much and have more square footage and have better access to health care. As far as the first thing Madonna said there, not caring about your age, I mean, again, it doesn't care, but it very, very much affects people of different ages much differently. I think Madonna doesn't want you to care about how old she is. That's what I think is going on. But while it's true, I wasn't actually leaning towards taking epidemiological cues from anyone in a bathtub before this. Now I'm really, really wary. Mama don't preach. You know what I'm saying? The virus, lacking a metabolic system, isn't living. It doesn't think, but it does affect people who are mostly affected by harmful natural phenomena more than it affects people who largely are better off in dealing with with health crises, meaning like with so many things in our society, the poor get it worse. Minorities in America being poor have it worse. Also minorities, especially African-Americans are in worse health. If you're in worse health to begin with, the virus affects you in a worse way. The old get it worse. The young blessedly don't, but it's not because of a virus not caring or discriminating. I personally, don't care to hear anymore about how the virus doesn't care. I care about if our leaders sufficiently care about us. That's disturbing, but I find that to be true. That, that is a legitimate live question, but mostly I care how we are going about caring for each other. That's it for today's show. Priscilla Lobby doesn't discriminate between rich, poor, black, white, rocket, or arugula. The first Becky or later Beckys doesn't discriminate. Margaret Kelly doesn't discriminate between dusk and twilight. She cares not a whit for the crepuscular. GIST producer Daniel Schrader's favorite tiger is Flying Tiger Copenhagen for their broad array of items that sell for only $2 or $3 but are clearly worth like $275 or $350. The gist. Did Madonna just say the virus doesn't care about how rich, famous, or funny you are? Oh my God, Gallagher is effed. Depper depper and thanks for listening.